Welcome to Hep Talks. I'm Luke Kemper, and for this episode, we're going to play a conversation I had last December with Penny Rabiger about anti-racism, governance, and approaches and pushbacks to tackling systemic racism. Penny has had a really interesting career trajectory in education, which she will share more about in a moment. But she is currently a school governor while also consulting and doing a full-time PhD about the topics covered in this podcast. Just a quick warning before we start, this interview does contain language about race, racism, sexism, slavery, and genocide. All right, here we go. Welcome to Hep Talks. I'm Luke Kemper here with Penny Rabiger. Did I pronounce that right, Penny? You did. Great. Lovely. Well, thank you for joining us. And um, I'm going to, because you have a very esteemed CV, I'm going to let you actually introduce yourself. Um, Could you maybe just give me a brief introduction of yourself and the the areas in which you work? Sure. So I'm an ex-teacher and I left teaching and joined um, what was then a startup called The Key for School Leaders and was uh, director of business development there. And since then, I've worked with a number of charities and startups in the education sector. I'm a school governor um, and I work uh, freelance as well as doing a full time PhD. So, yeah, not a lot at all. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I am just curious. I I did a little bit of background research on on some of these organizations. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of curious at how you ended up in so many different areas of education. So there's like the key for school leaders, which is focused on school leadership, but also like LIFTA, which is ed tech. Um, and then uh, the BAMED network, which is is about racial equity. Um, so how did you kind of like span all of those areas? Yeah, I guess because I'm a little bit hyperactive, but well, um, I joined I joined the key um, because I was teaching and teaching abroad and we moved back to, to England. And it was clear that with despite the fact that I had uh 10 years of teaching in primary and secondary under my belt and an MA in education, um, my qualifications weren't going to be accepted in this country. Um, So I started looking for other things. And the key was just this pilot service that was going to be run by government. And I kind of went on a wild journey with the key as it grew to become what it is today, which is in about 50% of schools nationally. And it's uh, really successful Uh, information and uh, guidance service for school leaders and for governors and I left there after about seven and a half years and went on to work at Challenge Partners which helps schools to peer review each other Um, but I think because I also had this kind of um, startup to grown-up experience um, and you know I had such a great grounding in that through working in this startup going on this crazy journey from just being a teacher to sort of joining this ed tech world Um, I also did a little bit, you know, one day a week of freelance advising startups. And that's how I came to be working with Lifto, which is a Finnish ed tech organization that does beautiful, beautiful stuff around documentary film, turning them into immersive worlds for teachers and pupils to mm. use. Um, so I was advising them 
for a while and then joined the team, worked there for about three years. So I guess just things come up and the BayMed Network is a charity that I'm a co-founder of and a trustee. And that came about, I mean, a lot of what <laughs> I get involved in comes about through Twitter and LinkedIn and kind of connecting with people. So that came about because uh, there was a conversation between two people on Twitter, uh, Alana Gay and Amjad Ali. Um, and Alana was a deputy and Amjad an assistant head and they were discussing who would be least likely to be to make it to headship based on you know the inequity and the barriers that, that are put up for people of colour in the mm. education sector and you know a few people chipped into the conversation and it, one thing led to another and we, we were saying well we should really get together and try to find practical ways to support people and to spread information and yeah so I kind of jumped in uh, <laughs> into that and we set up the Baymed network about six years ago. Wow okay so Twitter can be a productive space for ideas. Just, yeah Twitter uh, is a very productive space it's also a very unsafe and yeah. vile space but uh I've come unstuck a few times but I think I've managed to kind of work out how to navigate it without mm. um getting myself in too much difficulty <laughs> I, I think that's easy to do on there especially these days yeah um no so that's actually a really nice nice story that that came out of that and it's it's quite interesting I I don't know if you managed to uh see the blog post that kind of accompanied the previous Hep Talks podcast that I did with Marva mm. um, about the uh, they put out a, a review which which uh, talked about basically the racial inequalities through the teacher pipeline up to headship oh, yes. and um, and the national, how, national Foundation for Education Research uh, and for yeah. yeah 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 and that was I mean just as a visualization, just seeing that graph was um, like, wow. Yeah, the interesting thing about, I mean, there's been so many reports and so much research over the, you know, 50 years, and that's part of what I'm looking at with my PhD. But but I think mm. the interesting thing about that ENFA report was that it just showed how there, there are no lack of people of colour who are trying to get into teaching, but they're knocked back even at the uh, application stage. Mm. And they're knocked back at, you know, qualifying once they do get onto the courses. Um, and, and I think it's unpacking those things and moving away from the deficit narrative that there's something inherently wrong with, mm. you know, black and Asian people who want to be teachers, but it's the system which is, is viewing them with deficit eyes right. um, and then unnecessarily putting up barriers to success. Yeah, so you see that really viscerally through that, through their graphs and through the information that they've disseminated there, definitely. And is that one of the um, primary focuses of the, the BayMed network or uh, what are the kind of objectives of that network? Yeah, so several things we do because there's six of us who are trustees um, and we're all, we all have full-time roles doing other things. So we do stuff you know voluntarily we, we really try to be 
kind of practical and um, action oriented. So our kind of main areas are one, we have a website which just is a repository for everything that you might ever need to know about race, racism and anti-racism in the education sector. Second thing is we try to respond in practical ways to issues. So so one of the first things we did was to set up a um, directory of speakers because we, we were pointing out that a lot of events and conference lineups and inset training providers and stuff, they were just all white lineups. And when we pointed it out, there would be a kind of defensive, well, we just don't know people who aren't white. So we decided to try to build um, a list of speakers who are people who can speak about education issues in general. So not just marginalized, speaking about race, racism and anti-racism, but talking about curriculum, talking about, you know, teaching and learning, talking about behavior. Um, So that's one of the things that's on our website. Uh, We've also built a directory of people who can support with diversity, equity and inclusion training and, um, you know, specifically around those areas. And we provide uh, a coaching um, program. So we train people to become coaches because it's a great feather to have in your cap if you're an educator. Um, But we also provide uh, some free coaching for people. And again, we're really careful not to do that through a deficit model of, oh, well, you know, obviously people of colour need extra help because there's some deficit, but rather, you know, the system is working against us. And so you will need support. You will need a reliable um, person who can really walk with you through job applications, through difficulties, through triumphs. And so we try to provide those sorts of things. And then we also do uh, a number of conferences online and face-to-face and there we try to showcase. So we've got 10 regional groups and a couple of special interest groups as well. So across the regions, there are BayMed networks that are, you know, BayMed West Midlands, BayMed um, Yorkshire yeah. on the Humber and so on and so forth. And then we have an SEND, Special Educational Needs and Disability Group. And yeah. we have a further education group and a governance group. So we try to showcase those through our regional events and our online events. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. I do quite a bit. That is quite a bit for a, a six-person volunteer organization. Yeah. Yeah, with 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 another, you know, each of the regional groups and special interest groups, there's another five or six people running those. And okay. they do phenomenal work. Our Wales group is really embedded in um, what's happening with the Welsh government and they're kind of trying to become the first anti-racist nation. Mm. Um and our Bristol group is doing phenomenal things as well. And they all work with different models of doing things and with different partners. So hmm. phenomenal hmm. group of people. Great. Okay. Well, I am curious about um, more of that and, and kind of one aspect in particular uh, just because I know that there's been some contention around it, which is the the terminology and the language, mm. um, right? And so this, even even the name, I guess, of the organization now, BAME Ed Network, I mean, has that kind of, 
I don't know, maybe come under fire is too strong of a word, but maybe not. Um, is is there some issues and has there been talk about, I don't know, perhaps changing that or, or yeah, what, what are your takes on that? Yeah, so it's been a really interesting process for us because we, among ourselves, have talked about, well, what do we do uh, about the name? Because the acronym has become defunct um and to some people it's you know it's quite triggering it now um well it it was always problematic and actually when we started up we had a kind of ironic use of it which was Mm. since we are statistically grouped together as BAME and that would include people like me you know I'm racialized as white but I come from Jewish heritage so minority the ME bit of the minority ethnic encompasses all sorts of different experiences around um, discrimination, which could be, you know, racialized as well. Mm. So it is, we kind of ironically were saying, well, look, it's lumping together all of these people, but what we want to do through the BAME Ed Network is to unpack some of the experiences, you know, that people have and to think about how that plays out in the education sector. So we've always been mindful that it's not it's not a term that is adequate and it's contentious. But yes, since um, a lot of organisations have come out against it and civil service doesn't use it and a lot of governmental organisations now are kind of railing against it, right. we did have to do a bit of soul searching. And there's kind of two camps. One is it's just a distraction to focus on it doesn't really matter what we're called what matters is the work that we do and the impact that we have and then the second camp is well since we're a charity if it's off-putting to people and they don't want to join with us and they believe that our mission doesn't can't support them because of our name then maybe we need to consider that so that's kind of where we're at, where, where we've done a whole piece of, um, we were lucky enough to get some pro bono support from a branding company to just mm. explore that, do some focus groups, do some surveys, speak to members, speak to people who don't want to engage with us, speak to people who have engaged with us and now don't, um, you know, a whole range of people. And then we'll have to take a, you know, take a position on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you mind but, if I ask? Yeah, I guess you don't have to answer this, but uh, which which camp do you fall in? Yeah, so I mean, for me, it's difficult because I guess I'm sort of researching, and so I'm more uh, spending more time maybe with people who for whom BAME is it's not a positive. It kind of shows you're a bit behind the curve if you're using right. that. But I also kind of get the position of you know if we're going to waste time or money or energy on a big rebranding exercise you know maybe that's not I don't know I'm very torn because I feel I feel we can rebrand and not lose traction or people or relevance I really actually feel that very strongly Mm -hmm. um, partly because I've been through rebrand situations with a couple of organizations uh, including the key that used to be called 10 professional support and then rebranded as the key and we were very nervous like oh we could become irrelevant people won't know who we are so I don't know I don't I'm not firmly one way or the other and I'm really mindful of 
all of the sensibilities and sensitivities on all camps. Yeah. You know, yeah. if we were setting it up today from scratch, I wouldn't call it the Bayhead Network. Okay, so if we if we could move on, there are many things that we've already kind of touched on that I'll probably try to come back to a little bit. Um, but I'm going to go with this BAME Ed thing uh, because HEP used to have its BAME Achievement Pledge and its uh, BAME Group, but has it has been recently renamed to the Racial Equity Group, and you're a part of that, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so what was your experience in that? How did you get involved in, and what's the focus of, of that group and your work in it? Yeah, it's, I think what is so powerful about it is that it's harnessing the, the collaboration and the collective efforts across Haringey schools or across schools that are part of Haringey Education Partnership. Mm-hmm. And so the main aim to begin with was to tackle in particular black caribbean child heritage children's prospects in our schools because you know we're not doing children from those heritages any favors in the mm. way that you know in their outcomes so it was very much about it's about racial equity in focusing on what um, groups do we serve and what their outcomes are and the pledge was a kind of central point where schools sign up and say we will tackle this and we will do something about it and we'll do that contextually based on our school and what's happening for pupils in our own contexts yeah and it's it's focused on very practical measures you know I'm a very practical person so (laughs) it speaks to me Um, but I think before we jump in with action we also need to kind of educate ourselves and understand and again you know you talked about that ENFA report that Mm -hmm. exposes for a lot of people for the first time don't know why but for the first time that you know our education sector is majority white Mm -hmm. um and in a lot of places around the country it's not serving majority white populations families um there's a there's a problem around that so yeah the racial equity steering group we we put on a conference once a year we try to push forward with schools not only signing the pledge but taking action um, and thinking about what their strategy is and how they understand themselves as organisations that are in danger of um, reproducing racist structures um, mm-hmm. and poor outcomes for children that should be served better. Yeah, and those uh, those conferences that you mentioned are actually available on our on our HEP website, so you That's can right. watch them. They're quite interesting. So I think going off of what you said um, about schools and them making the the pledge um, to to help students of specifically Black Caribbean backgrounds, um, but 
you know, more broadly also from, from all uh, races and ethnic backgrounds. Um, there's also the the role of governorship, right? Um, and you are a governor. You've been a governor for how long? Ooh, um, I've been a governor in different schools probably for the last 15 years, oh, wow, okay. I say. Um, but I've been governor at West Green mm-hmm. for a while. I can't remember. <laughs> I was chair of governors for four years and I've recently, thank goodness, <laughs> done a successful uh, succession planning yeah, um, exercise and there's a wonderful chair there. And so I'm still on the governing board. Um, so so what is that like um, for, I mean, especially to to me as as someone who came to the UK um as a as a foreigner and and doesn't have governors in my mm. native country or at least not in that sense of the word not education governors mm-hmm. um yeah what can you tell a little bit about your role as a governor like what does that entail and and what do you also specifically focus on yeah so i just have to caveat it by saying that the system of governance is bonkers. I mean, there is, I agree. <laughs> it's it is bonkers. I mean, it's it's not entirely mad, but it's it's an attempt to kind of make sure that there is community accountability for schools, which I think is really important with the fragmentation of the education sector and you know less and less council, you know, local authority involvement or attempts to kind of disentangle schools from local authority involvement I think it is important to have that accountability Mm -hmm. Um, but it is kind of strange because you've got lay people you know sort of weighing in and sometimes they just get boiled down to people who like meetings and people who have a specific very white middle class cultural capital who love sitting in meetings and kind of bureaucratizing stuff Mm. so I guess um, my main mission is to sort of try and disrupt that a little bit um, Mm. make sure we have really good representation around the table and that there are different ways of doing things Um, my experience of it is is overwhelmingly positive Um, I think the most difficult period of being a governor was when I was a parent governor at my children's school um, mainly because it's just really tricky to to kind of navigate that as a parent and as a governor and Mm. you either get inappropriately involved pushing pulling sort of you know throwing your weight around as a parent or I, I found I kind of did the opposite which was to kind of neglect because I was so worried about not making myself out to be some kind of martyr or hero but I was very worried about overstepping so I kind of stepped back from involvement in my own children's experience at school for a little while and that was good that the head actually said to me you need to adjust the balance but I think it is a really difficult staff governor and parent governor is a difficult role to have and I think in terms of the anti-racism work I think that's been really interesting because uh, we've signed up to the pledge, but as uh, a chair of governors and now as a governor, I can see on the ground how really difficult it is to actually get moving and do something. You know, I see this as my area of deep interest and growing 
expertise and yet yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to mobilize and to kind of push ahead with it and why do you think that is there's many reasons I think because well schools are really busy places and you've got to like balance priorities Uh, you know in my world if you sort out issues around structural racism everything else flows from there because Mm. you're if you're unlocking an area which has been locked up into inequity um, and you change that then everyone benefits from it but I think um, there's there's lots of priorities there was a pandemic which also shifted some of the things it unlocked actually quite a lot of positive stuff around anti-racism because I think there was a bit more time for CPD for learning Mm -hmm. for thinking for collaborating in different ways Mm-hmm. And there was a lot online that people could suddenly, you know, free stuff online, people could learn. But I think what's interested me is how to, yeah, how to keep these two things going together. One is the learning and the kind of racial literacy. And the t- second is the um, moving from it being a kind of area of interest to an area of action, but making sure that action is you know good action so one of the things that I've done recently with a colleague as part of the work that I do with Leeds Beckett University is we've just done a kind of brain dump on if there was an introduction to anti-racist governance what Mm. would it look like and we've created a small sort of guide for governors on that and this is the the anti-racist handbook for governors that you've been working on yeah yeah so we're hoping to turn it into a kind of book form that's a bit longer but that one uh, the one that we've created through Leeds Beckett University, it it really just takes governors through what is race, what's institutional racism, what's structural racism, what's multiculturalism and how does that work? And mm. then it takes you through kind of six areas where racism dwells within our schools. So it's not about if racism is present. It is present in leadership governance and strategy and how do you sort of surface that and unpack it and and change things so that you can shift that it's there in the school environment it's there in a kind of hidden curriculum so those hidden messages that we give families and children and staff um, that are a bit different to the ones that are kind of like our ethos is but actually what's happening on the ground Hmm. It's there in curriculum, in pedagogy. It's there in how we do professional learning and development. And it's there in our relationships with parents, carers, our community partnerships. Um, so, so we kind of look at that and we look also at other concepts like what's been called race blindness, but I think we call it colour evasiveness now and hidden okay. workload and mental health and hmm. And what anti-racism would look like in predominantly white schools as well, because I think there's often a view that racism only happens when people of colour are present. Mm. You know, it's somehow because there are people of colour there that suddenly we get racism. But actually, racist structures are inherent no matter who's there. So not not saying I I'm disagreeing with any of this. In fact, I I don't. But um, but I must admit that there is a sort of um, 
what can I say? Like a, almost like a sinisterness of, of, of admitting the fact that, you know, racism is all around us and, and exists in all of these structures. And I'm sure that that gets kind of called out and there's a little bit of hesitance around mm-hmm. that, right? When, when you bring that up to people. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's a really funny one because I often kind of do a gateway into understanding about racism by talking about sexism. So uh, somehow it's easier for us to understand that society is a bit sexist, right? That even though things have improved, there are patriarchal structures that are so historical and so embedded that that they do act against us. And then I will also use that to frame, you know, even though I'm a woman, I have a patriarchal framework that I have been socialized into. And so I do do things that are oppressive to female Mm. colleagues, family members. You know, I will look my daughter up and down and say, are you going out wearing that? And then catch my well usually she'll catch me out and say (laughs) you know are you slut shaming me that's sexist you know but I I view the world through this framework that I've been socialized into people find that easier to get their heads around Hmm. when you shift it to race somehow we're much much more defensive and fragile about that and and so it is hard to kind of (laughs) convince people that you know, as somebody who's racialized as white, especially, mm-hmm. I I will have in me a lot of attitudes and socialization and ways of viewing the world and an imagination of how things work that is framed around white supremacy, which also triggers people when you mention that. But white supremacy is just that, you know, there is a perceived hierarchy where white people somehow sit at the top and then everything else is is structured um, accordingly and that we have an interest in holding on you know any power holders and dominant group has an interest in holding on to that power and dominance and in this case you know whiteness wants to hold on to its power and dominance but yes there is there's a lot of pushback and I think there's a lot of people who genuinely believe that if we say we don't see race and if we try to treat everybody the same then it'll all be okay Mm. which I mean I don't believe that that is right I think through being colorblind or race blind you are um, essentially sort of wiping out people who people are you know it's very important to me that I'm a woman if you told me that you didn't see my gender Mm. I would be like well first of all that's not really possible and second of all it's important to me that I'm a woman so if you don't see it then you're and the same I think if you're a black person you want to be who you are right yeah so there is a lot of pushback I think What about your PhD? What are you? What is your research on? <laughs> yeah. So the PhD came about. I have to say, I never wanted to do a PhD. Uh, I'm married to an academic who's always saying you should do a PhD, and I was like, no, thanks, mate. I met you, and you were just finishing yours. No thanks. <laughs> but 
what happened was I was coaching on the anti-racist school award um, and I work with about 70 schools across the country, all different phases and all different stages on their anti-racism journeys. And I was very sort of interested in the themes that seemed to be coming out. So I contacted Professor Vinnie Lander, who wrote the award and, um, you know, oversees it and said to her, wow, there's some amazing themes. Somebody needs to do some research on this because we need to capture this stuff. And she very kindly said, somebody, hello, somebody, you, you know, your best position to do this. So that's my PhD. I'm looking at what happens to people who are leading on anti-racism in their school, mm. what motivated them to get involved, what, what happens next for them, um, and looking at some of, the, some of the themes that are coming out from there. Oh, very interesting. Sounds like some, I, I'm guessing that is quite qualitative research yeah. then with a, a, about how, how many people have you uh, looked at so far? So I've, I'm going to start, so I've spent just on my first year and part of that year you have to get ethical approval to start working with actual people, asking them, you know, having in-depth conversations. So after Christmas, I will be sending out a survey and then I'll be um, lining up people to do in-depth interviews or conversations with. Um, I think what's unique about my ability to do this is that I'm already having coaching conversations, which obviously can't be mm -hmm. included in my research findings, but they help me to be really kind of focused in on what some of the things, what some of the themes are already and what some of the things are that I might like to find out more about. Mm. Um, yeah. That's really nice. So you get, yeah, you get kind of like a pre-focus on what you're going to be looking yeah. at. Yeah. And it's also, um, I don't want to say forced me because I don't feel forced, but it's, it compelled me to, you know, I've read now um, quite a bit around the last 50 to 70 years of uh, English education and race, racism and anti-racism. And, and so people like Marva Rollins, you know, they've, they've, there's nothing new here that they're seeing in yeah. terms of, you know, they've been around this thing. <sighs> they're living it. Right. So mm -hmm. she's got such rich um, knowledge and lived experience and um, frontline experience as an educator and as an advisor on on these issues. Um, and there was a time when most of the, if not all, London local authorities had anti-racism policies in place. They had a train-the-trainer structure where all teachers had to go through racial literacy and anti-racism training, and that was yeah. that was in the 80s, and that was dismantled. By the 90s, it was gone as if nothing. Wow. Wow. That's, um, that's kind of shocking to hear, actually. I, I mean, both that it was around in the 80s and that it was dismantled, it's, it's very... I, I did not expect that at all. Was there a reason why it was dismantled other than... Yeah, change of government. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and kind of pushing this view that... Um, the Thatcherist view, there's no such thing as society and uh, we don't, you know, it doesn't matter what colour... You know, the race blind, the yeah. colour evasive stuff came in quite strongly... But that, I mean, for a lot of people, I think the events of summer 2020 was their awakening to 
the ideas around structural racism and that mm. it's in our schools and we need to do something about it. You know, Marva is somebody who's very clearly can just roll her eyes and say, look, this is there's nothing new happening here, but good that you're getting engaged and let's go, let's do this. I, I did appreciate that about Marve, even though she's probably had the same conversation that she did with me so a million times. Yeah. yeah, right. She is just very patient about explaining it all again and again. And and she did say that as well, you know, like I've, I've seen it. I've seen this all before. You know, these reports have come out. It's been a long time. Yeah. So it's it's quite impressive, um, her patience and and her work. What it, what it leads me to is kind of this larger question that, you know, all of these ideas that you've explained and the ones that you've put in the, the handbook, in the anti-racist handbook for governors, um, are you pretty convinced, I mean, I guess you must be, but <laughs> are you pretty convinced that they are the right strategies to take and that is the, the way against racism? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'll have a massive crisis at some point and change my mind, but I very much doubt it. Um, I think that race was invented for a specific purpose, right? So it's not, I think what the, the naysayers are trying to do is to say, it doesn't matter because we're all humans and we just happen to have different races. But that's not taking into account that race as a concept was invented to justify genocide, to justify kidnap, uh, genocide, relocation, forced enslavement, and then release of people from these conditions with nothing, no compensation, in quite, quite the opposite. You know, that compensation was given to enslavers for the, uh, the terrible inconvenience of losing their revenue stream. So it's not just about the color of people's skin it's about what it was created for and I think that's something that we have to reckon with and then we have to think about you know the other excuse that is given is that that well that's passed now and we've abolished enslavement and so let's just move on mm -hmm. but what hasn't passed is the discrimination that those imaginations that were so promoted and propagated and um, put into our consciousness, uh, they still linger and we still have these, you know, you can say, oh, no, I don't believe that and I don't think that. But it's so over so many generations embedded in white consciousness yeah. um, that that is the thing that needs to be addressed. And that's the thing I think needs to be looked at carefully and dismantled and debunked because um because it's still it still has an impact now and that's why you know my occupation with the education sector is just one of the outcomes but we know that the outcomes happen across all sorts of sectors so we know that in health for example simple things like black women uh, giving birth will be treated as if they have higher pain thresholds. They won't be believed um, when they say, 
you know, I'm having contractions or mm. I need to push now. And also the medical profession uh, bases everything on white skin. So looking at skin rashes or bruising or skin conditions, we're not trained to look at them on any skin except white skin. So that, that racism continues on and has real life impacts every day. And those are the sorts of things that I think we need to address those. And so it's not really about interpersonal, you know, where did you say a racist thing and hurt somebody's feelings? It's not about hurting feelings, although people are extremely hurt by racism. I think it's mm. about those structures and the way that the, the outcomes are still impacting in terms of life and death, in terms of life chances. Yeah, and that's not acceptable. Uh, is there is there anything else maybe that we didn't touch on that you'd that you'd like to talk about? I mean, I'm appreciative of what HEP is doing and I'm appreciative of their, you know, the ability to be challenged hard and the stance that's not all about self-congratulatory, you know, it's not about self-congratulatory at all. I think there's some really good people trying to do some difficult work and that there's a really good you know on the racial equity group for example it's really robust challenging people are not fragile at all and we're able to to really explore issues in in depth I think so that's just one thing to say I, I, I appreciate that despite the fragmentation of the education sector there it does seem to be a strong commitments within Haringey for schools to to work together and to support each other and to challenge each other yeah well I, I appreciate that and I, I think that is something that HEP tries to tries to do and tries to reinforce among the schools that we work with so yeah definitely nice to know that it it gets recognized <laughs> well on that note then uh, thank you very much yeah, thank for, you. for talking to me today. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Penny Rabiger, educational consultant, school governor, full-time PhD student, and anti-racism advocate, among her many other hats. If you enjoyed this conversation, we would love it if you could like and subscribe to the podcast. And of course, sharing with your friends helps as well. HEP Talks strives to bring you fascinating conversations about current topics in education, as well as the latest in educational news. If you have a burning desire to share an important topic or piece of education-related work that you've been doing, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch by emailing me at luke.kemper at haringayeducationpartnership.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned to HEP Talks.